0: Well, good morning. (laughs) With apologies to those who work in another insurance field, (coughs) it wasn't about that. (laughs) Oh, yes, it doesn't take much, does it, to become like our parents, does it? Become like mom or dad, depending on who's around you and what happens with that. Um, This morning, I think my dad is in the audience, so I need to be careful what I say, what stories I tell, so uh, I'll try to be fair to that, dad. But um, it it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. We... um, we immediately, without too many years passing, become like our our parents. And as much as we may want to push back on that and say, no, that's not going to happen to us, it, it inevitably will happen to some degree. Whether you're sitting there and like me, sometimes you realize your legs are crossed like that or your hands are doing something just like mom or dad used to do, or even worse, if your spouse says to you, if your relationship can handle it, you are acting like your dad or your mom. It's taken Jen and I a couple of years to get to that point to be able to say that when that is indeed true. But in our own family, you know, we had this thing, I don't know what it was, but um, whenever we would go to the airport, our family became super stressed. I don't know if you're like that, but I didn't realize that was a thing until I married Jen, and she wasn't super stressed going to the airport. And I just saw everyone, like, get super stressed, get super, super stressed when they um, go to the airport. And uh, clearly, I, I, I realized two things. Number one, not everyone gets stressed. And number two, we forgot the children's church slide. Okay. So some of you realize that and are trying to get that out. So I'm going to interrupt my story to tell that story. If you have a kid age five to grade three, they're able to go out. Most of them return. Actually, you need to, as a parent or an adult, find them again, which you'll find them by going downstairs after the service and you get them down there. I think I'm right on that. Is that correct? Okay, good. So yes, age five, grade three, there you go. Now back to my story for a minute. We would travel a lot because my parents grew up overseas, and this morning, in fact, um, the pastor of our church in Barbados where I grew up is here, so Pastor Trotman and his wife Cynthia, glad to have you here with us. So if you want to connect with him and make sure that I really did attend a church in Barbados you can see him afterwards, but really grateful for him and the legacy of faith that both uh, the Trotmans have passed on to me and others. But as we grew up there, we would travel back and forth to the States and and Barbados and all that, and it was always a stressful day of going to the airport because you think in that moment... Anything that could possibly go wrong will go wrong. The car never gets a flat tire, but on that day it will, right? Like the traffic will never be terrible, but on that day it will. And we just I get this anxiety about traveling to the airport. In fact, my sister asked me a couple of months ago, would you take me to the train station in Parksburg, which is only 15 minutes from my house in Gap? I said, sure. So she came down to my house about an hour early, so we could get to the train station. It takes 15 minutes to get to. So we could get there 15 minutes early. I'm like, Rebecca, there's going to be zero traffic at 6.30 on a Saturday morning. Like, we are we're not going to run into anything. And the train is, is on time. So we get there 45 minutes early. And she said, I couldn't sleep last night because I was so stressed. I'm like, listen, doesn't this come from mom and dad? Like, I think this just is passed down. Like, it isn't a part of, of Jen's story, but it is a part... Of mine, And and so there's just things like that that are funny and strange that get, get handed down to us because the reality is we essentially become like those closest to us. And sometimes without even realizing, without thinking about it, I become like my parents. Now, we may joke about that and push back on some of that and say, you know, I don't really want to be that way, but, you know, it is what it is. But on the reverse side, we also need to recognize that there are some great things about mom and dad that we are honored to have mark us as well. Like, if you have a mom or a dad who people look at and you're like, uh, that's a, your mom is resilient. Like, she was dealt a tough hand, but she fought through. Like, okay. Like, that's okay. Like, I'm, I'm okay to be marked by that. I'm okay that I'm known as the daughter or the son of that kind of mom. Or, I, you know, I have a dad who is a, a dad of deep faith. Like, I'm okay to be, have that kind of passed down to me. There are things about moms and dads that are awesome, that are tremendous and that are powerful. And this morning, what I want to talk about is a characteristic of a dad, of a father, who actually is, portrays himself as a heavenly father. And one of the characteristics, one of the traits that he says marks his children is a trait that actually leads to something that we all want. It's a trait that leads to, believe it or not, it leads to people who love life. If you know of anyone who just wakes up and they love life even though they've been dealt a difficult hand, even though things haven't gone well, but people who just love life and they're an encouragement to you, there is a characteristic about our Heavenly Father that when, if we as His children who follow Him, work to develop this characteristic in our own life, we become like a son or a daughter of our Heavenly Father and it results in a love for life that we actually all want anyway. So I want to take you to a teaching of Jesus that works this out in this series, In Power, we are in. And the reason we're in the series on power is we're talking about the power of what we call the kingdom of God. And we believe that Jesus is setting up a teaching early on in the book of Matthew, where we'll be in just a minute, but he's teaching about both the kingdom of heaven and conversely what the, the alternative to the kingdom of heaven, if you want to call it the kingdom of this world, and laying out these two Um, extremes, if you will, of what, what does it mean to be someone in the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be someone who follows the power and influence structure of what Jesus has to offer versus what does it look like just to kind of wake up and live in our default behavior? And so we've been looking at this idea of power from Jesus' perspective. How does one use one's power and influence. And this teaching of Jesus is found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. But Matthew chapter 5 is where we will be, and Jesus has found himself... teaching a whole host of followers right now. We think probably hundreds of people are gathered to hear Jesus, um, and, and he's teaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount uh, right now. So Matthew chapter 5, again, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you, and that's our gift to you. If you don't have one, we'd love to have you take that, um, you know, take that with you this morning. But Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 10, and we're just going to talk about one of the verses this morning as we get close to the end of the series that we've been on for about eight weeks now. So here we go. Verse 1, "'Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.'" And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been with us for any of this teaching so far, you've seen at verse 10 where we just finished and then also at verse 3 that Jesus bookends this teaching with the idea of the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 3, if you're poor in spirit, that's the kingdom of heaven. And he finishes with blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we believe Jesus is saying is that everything within this characteristic list, this trait list, this beatitude list is what we call it, is a description of the kingdom of heaven, a, a power influence in God's kingdom, not just in man's kingdom. These are God's ideas of how people should live if they're followers of his. And so verse 9 is our focus this morning. Look again at verse 9. He says, Jesus is teaching, and you know, hundreds of people we believe are sitting there on the mountainside, and he says, blessed or happy or fulfilled or satisfied, you know, all of life will be, it'll be, be just right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And this is a fairly straightforward teaching. This really is. This is a fairly straightforward teaching. So here's what Jesus says, first of all. Blessed are the peacemakers. What is in the world does he mean by a peacemaker? We need to, first of all, define that term. But it, it is fairly straightforward. If you look at it, even the word itself, there's the idea of a peace maker. It's almost two words put together. Someone who makes peace. And so we're going to define it this way. You can see it up here on the screen. Someone who actively pursues peace in relationships with others. That's very simple. But it is a little nuanced. In other words, this is someone who actively, who actively pursues peace, not just reactively waits for it. In other words, not just someone who sits around being kind and nice, not just someone who is patient, not just someone who, you know what, hey, I'll, I'm, I'm ready to forgive if they are. Like, sure, I'm a nice guy if if they will be, but someone who actually is an intentional encourager, someone who goes to work and sees who might need encouraged or a conflict that might need worked out and knows if I have a part to play in that and is active in their pursuit of making peace in relationships with others. It's a mom or a dad who sees, you know, with my kids, there's something going on with my kids that's not right, and I see it and I know it and I want to help fix that. It's this active pursuit. Uh, The peacemakers material, Ken Sandy wrote a book about it, and he put three categories. He said, there's some people who are over in this category who are peace fakers, and then you have peace makers, and then this is going to rhyme and be awesome, Ready over here, peace breakers, isn't that cool? Uh, Peace fakers, makers, and breakers, and it's a helpful way to remember this. There's some people over here who are in the peace faking category. These are your passive aggressive people who just look like they're actually friendly, but what they're doing is silently taking the offenses and sticking them in their backpack. And then finally, when one thing weighs too much, when one offense comes, they blow up all over you. You're like, what in the world just happened? And for years, or whatever it might be, they've been peace faking. If you know someone like that, instinctively they come to mind. This is not a peacemaker, it's a peace faker. On the other hand is the peace breaking side of people who are just aggressive. They're just kind of angry. They just are getting things done without regard for who in the world they're interacting with or hurting along the way. And Jesus is kind of setting this thing up in the middle and saying, listen, blessed are the peacemakers, the people who actively pursue peace in relationship with one another. For they will be called, he says there, sons of God. Like, they're going to take on the characteristics of their heavenly father. They are going to be people who, when they look at you, they will be like, oh, you know what? You get stressed when you go to the airport. You must be a Rogers. Rogers. Right? Like that's what Rogers do, right? Like they will look at you and they will say, wait a minute, you make peace with people who are angry with one another and you don't allow accounts to go on too long. You don't hold grudges. You aren't a bitter person. You're a peacemaker. You must be a son or a daughter of a heavenly father who does the same thing. Because God, as heavenly father, did, didn't he? When he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, in the, the book of Romans, in the book of Ephesians, in these letters that were written in what we now call the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the one who makes peace between God and man, the one who comes to man in our sinfulness and brokenness and our distance from him and comes and makes peace with us. It's a theological word we call reconciliation, reconciles man to God and God. It's an incredible, incredible thing. And so, this is what God as Father has done, as He sent His Son to die for us. Therefore, when we are peacemaking, we are looking like our Heavenly Father. Now, here's the problem with this. Okay, let me, I need to talk about this. There are several problems that we have. The, the biggest problem with this is that this teaching from Jesus, like if you're, imagine this for a minute, that you're sitting on the mountainside with Jesus and you hear all these, you hear all these blessed are all at the same time. You're hearing all this coming at you. And you come home and you're trying to process with your wife, with your husband, with your friend, with your roommate, with your um, best friend, with your dad, with your sister, or whatever. You know, didn't Jesus say, Blessed are the peacemakers? And then what goes through your mind? But listen, but what about Uncle Joe? Come on, with Uncle Joe, like, I don't think Jesus means blessed are the peacemakers with, with Uncle Joe, because Uncle Joe has done some things. And I said, I know blessed are the peacemakers, but I don't think Jesus means, I don't, I don't think he means with the guy who just fired me, who fired the guy before him, who spoke ill of someone else. And immediately we begin thinking about, actually, Jesus, the teaching sounds fine. Like, it sounds good. But come on, let me. how does it work? Come on, how, how does it work? Because if you and now, now, back in 2018, and if, if you know any of the story of Jesus, it kind of seems like Jesus didn't actually follow his own advice. It kind of seems like Jesus wasn't actually always a peacemaker. In fact, it kind of seems like even in the Gospel of Matthew later on, he says, I didn't come to bring peace but the sword, because he actually said that. So what, what does this mean, blessed are the peacemakers? This is nuanced and and difficult. And we need to identify the problems that this teaching presents in order to get into it. And so I want to go deeper with you and discuss at least four of the problems and consider what is it that Jesus actually means and what is he actually saying. So here's one of the problems. Number one, one of the problems is is we can only make peace with those who want to make peace with us. We can only make peace with those who want to make peace with us. It takes two to tango. Like, making peace with people means that I'm making peace with you. Like, you have to be willing to make peace with me. So there are some people and there are some relationships where it's just impossible to fully make peace in in terms of restoring the relationship. Like, it's just not going to happen. That leads to this, this reality here, that there are some people we may never make peace with. This is a hard reality, but this we have to talk about If Jesus is going to make this statement, what does he mean? In Romans 12, Paul writes there, he says, Inasmuch as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Live at peace with everybody. And then he writes on later, he says in Romans 12, verses 19 and 20, he talks about um, leaving room in relationship. Like, if I'm offended with you, or let's say you're offended with me, let's make it easier. If you're upset with me, you are ready to reconcile, but I'm not. I'm still holding on to a, a, a grudge against you. Paul says in Romans 12, like in that gap, in that gap that exists in the relationship between you and me, in that gap, don't fill that gap with vengeance. Don't fill that gap with anger. Don't fill that gap with bitterness. Let God do his work. Here's what Paul writes there in Romans 12, 19 and 20. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So in other words, if we fill that gap or that space with revenge, we have a problem. We're taking away the work of God. Think about what Jesus did for a minute. When Jesus walked into the temple courts one time, you may or may not remember the story, but he walks into the temple courts. And what does he see? He sees people who are charging other people who have traveled a long way. They've traveled sometimes day upon day to get to the temple court. And they're charging them exorbitant prices to buy the animals they need for sacrifices. It used to be five bucks for a pigeon. Now, you know, you came from two, three days away. I'm going to charge you $35 for a pigeon. You need it. Jesus gets so angry. If you know the story, you know what he does. He overturns the, the... tables in the temple the money changers the people who are selling the sacrifices now, let me ask you blessed are the peacemakers jesus let's talk about what you just taught for they'll be called sons of god tell me jesus exactly how that's making peace because he did not set up a committee on reconciliation with the table money changers right like he didn't go out he didn't go that way when jesus consistently insults the the religious leaders he calls them whitewashed tombs when, when he stands before Pilate when he's about to be crucified and Pilate says, listen, Jesus, let me tell, me, tell me who you are. And Jesus says, instead of saying you know what, let me, let me dial this conflict down a little bit. Let me, let me make this a little easier for you. I'm, I'm, I'm the still Messiah, but let's just talk this through so we don't have to go the whole crucifixion route. Like, let's get some reconciliation in the room and make sure that the people who are really angry with me, they don't get so angry anymore, they don't feel threatened about their livelihoods and their legacies and their It's Like, let's just dial it down. He doesn't do that. He goes to the cross. He holds his line of who he is and the conviction of who he is. And so really, Jesus, come on, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God, but you're throwing tables around Jesus, and you're staying on point. You're insulting leaders in a community, but blessed are the peacemakers. There are some people, there are some people who we may never make peace with, and that may be okay. Sometimes making peace could invite greater harm. I don't want to miss this, especially if you are in a challenging or have been in a challenging Relationship with somebody. In other words, if you have been or are in an abusive relationship of any kind, when you hear the words that I'm saying this morning, it can weigh heavier on you, particularly if your heart is soft to it, particularly if there's a a weight of guilt or shame that you feel for some reason for the person who has been abusive toward you. And I want you to understand the nuance of this that sometimes quote-unquote, making peace could invite greater harm. In other words, just folding, giving up, just walking back into a relationship without processing healthy boundaries and safety for your future is not what I think Jesus is saying here, and I don't want you to hear my words that way. That makes sense. Finally here, sometimes we overly peacemake. You know anyone who's a people pleaser? Don't raise hands or nudge, but people pleasers are actually afraid of people. They don't actually like people that much. They're just afraid of people and what people's power has over them. And sometimes we can overly peacemake, meaning we overly pacify the people around us, wanting everyone to be happy so much that we end up losing conviction of heart and soul entirely. We become like a wet noodle, really ineffective and unhelpful at all for, for one another. And so we have problems at a variety of levels with this teaching of Jesus. Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers; they'll be called sons of God. But listen, but what about my ex? <laughs> but what what about my ex who's making my life difficult, incredibly difficult right now? What should I do with that, Jesus? Like, what about the coworker who just took credit for the work that I did in the office and isn't giving me any opportunity to advance because of what they just did? But Jesus, what, what about my, my parents? What about my, my dad who abused me? Like, what does that, that mean for me? Like, what, what about my spouse who doesn't actually want to reconcile and we're living at in, in odds with and there's a coldness in our relationship we can't get through that? What does this mean? Blessed are the peacemakers. Come on, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that even mean to, to make peace? There's a whole slew of problems with this teaching all along the way. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there with a difficulty as we hear his teaching and walk home and be like, Jesus, Jesus, but what about, but what about, what about, what about, what about? Those are good questions to ask. But he does give us more. And he gives us more in the very passage that you are in right now in Matthew chapter 5. So I want you to look down a little bit further in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. He explains this a little bit more. And he says this in 38 of Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So to summarize it, he says this in verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then look what he says in verse 45. See if this sounds familiar. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What does that mean, Jesus? Look at verse 45 at the end. Here's how he describes his Father. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He does both. In other words, even the people who are far from God, the people who curse God, the people who hate his name, he still gives life to. Causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall, that they may eat, that they may live another day to curse his name. And then he gives them sun and rain again, that they may live another day to curse his name. Because that is what a heavenly father, who is a peacemaking father, does. Two things about Jesus' statement here. Number one, he says, essentially, don't seek revenge. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's more than that. My instinct, I don't know about yours, my instinct is immediately to get even, to be angry, to know what has been wronged, and to figure it out, and to get even. And Jesus teaches me a different thing, that the instinct of getting revenge, while understandable, is not necessarily the heart of the Heavenly Father, and not necessarily a characteristic of a son or a daughter of God. And he takes that further in verse verse 44. Look at verse 44, he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So secondly, I want to recommend to you here, step toward love and prayer. Step toward love and prayer. This is really helpful advice. It's a good litmus test. For me and and I think for you, if you can imagine the person that has caused you the most anxiety, the biggest struggle you might have in life right now, you might also ask the question, when is the last time and how consistent am I in praying for that person who has really crossed me? Years ago, when I first started at what was then Paradise Mennonite Church, now Grace Point Church, um, there was an older pastor in our community who um, gave his time to just mentor me, basically, and I sat in his office for an hour early on in my time here and, uh, you know, had a great time chatting with him. And, I, and talking with him for an hour, it felt like I was there for months. I mean, there was just so much helpful wisdom that he downloaded to me. Really enjoyed the relationship and still do. And one of the things that I learned from him later on, this is months later, is um, I learned that one of his elders who still attended his church, on this, they were an elder-led church. Now, this is a larger church in our community, but one of his elders... He was actually so angry with the church that the elder was suing the church who, while still an active member of the church. And I was talking to him about that situation. I said to him, man, how do, you, how do you process that? Like, these are guys you've gone to battle with, right? Like, these are guys that you've shared a ton with. You've borne your soul with them, basically, in pursuit of the best interests of this church. And here's one of the guys who's, who's tight with you. And he's coming around and suing you, <laughs> and suing the church, Causing division and anger. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. And he said to him, I, I've had to process a lot. He said, I now mostly feel sad for him rather than mad anymore. And this is how I pray for him that things will be different for him, and that he can see them differently, but if not, that God would give me the grace to handle this. And I'm listening there to this guy, I'm saying, yeah, okay, like, I don't think I could do that right now pastor friend. (laughs) I don't think I have that peace yet to do that. But here's what he taught me in that space. Pray for those who persecute you. Why is that so powerful? Think about that with me for a minute. Why is prayer so powerful in that moment? And here's how I imagine it. That prayer in that moment, in that space, for the people who you are most upset with, for the people who most cross you, for the people that you have conversations with in your mind, why is prayer? Why did Jesus say pray for them? Why would my pastor friend pray? What does that do for him? Prayer is a small act, it's a small act of love for someone you don't want to love. And in that act of love, it's like flushing out the toxins of bitterness and rage and anger out of your body, out of your system, out of your heart, out of your soul. It's an invitation for the Spirit of God to do his work to cleanse you and to clean you from the inside out. And prayer is that flushing out of that bitterness and anger that can wear you out and dry up your bones and grow you into a bitter old person. And prayer for your enemy is that small act of love that cleanses our heart and soul. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. The, the powerful thing that that leads into is the thing I said at the beginning. It leads you and leads this pastor friend of mine to be someone who actually, even though they encounter all kinds of people who are angry with them, can actually, believe it or not, love life. One of Jesus' followers was Peter, and Peter takes this teaching of Jesus just a little bit further, and I wanted to show it to you this morning because it's so powerful in what he says. Peter, when he's writing to people early on in the church, and they're trying to figure out what the church is about and who Jesus is and all that, he says to them this, in First Peter chapter 3, he says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, and be compassionate and humble. Then he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he says this, For whoever would, look at that, love life. Like, I'm not just making this up. Like For whoever would, love life. And if you're in that category, then you want to pay attention to this. Like, if you're in the category of, I want to love life, then here's what Peter's saying. Like, if anybody in the room, if anyone listening, if anyone wants to love life, just pay attention right now. This is actually a quote from Psalm 34. But if anyone would love life, and so if that's you, just kind of yours. To the point now here. If anyone would love life and see good days, like that sounds like a good thing. Like I think I'm going to pay attention. All right. If that's the case, then what must they do? They must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. And otherwise, in other words, to summarize it, he must seek peace and pursue it. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is an active relationship with the people around you and the people around me and do you see the tie-in between love life seek peace love life seek peace love life seek peace why because if you don't and if i don't the bitterness the anger the frustration the disappointment the disillusionment will rot you and me out and the seeking of peace is not only therapeutic but it is what a heavenly father has done for you, and a heavenly father has done for me, and his children do likewise. Peter asks this question in verse 13 as he finishes this. He says, Who is going to harm you? Second, we Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? In other words, if you seek peace and pursue it, who's going to harm you? In other words, it will likely go well with you. People are going to enjoy being with you. You're going to make your work environment better, your family environment better, your church environment better, personal life better. Like, who's going to harm you if you're going to do good? Now, the answer to that is actually some people will still harm you. <laughs> some people will still be difficult. And he says this, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And I just want to focus on this last part and give you a couple questions to wrap it up. But in your hearts, look at the end of that Section there. Set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, do what he would do. Set it apart. When you walk into a situation where you feel offended, you feel like you're struggling, you my default is going to be to get revenge, to get even, to tell the stories of how you've offended me, or maybe you tell a story of how I offended you. But, Jesus, but Peter says, in these moments, set apart Christ as Lord. What does that mean? For me, when I go to the airport, when I travel, when I go on the train, when I'm taking a road trip, the anxiety immediately comes to me. I set apart, it's, it's weird, like I set apart in my life, traveling is stressful. It had just become that for me, and I, I work on that, but, but set apart, traveling is stressful because I step into that box of traveling, and it's like, <clears throat> like all that could go wrong will go wrong. Like right now, we're going to blow a head gasket, whatever that is, is going to blow, and you know, we're going to have a flat tire, and we're going to do it, like it's just all going to go chaotic, and I step into that, and that's kind of what I feel like. And Peter is saying, when you step into these moments, like set apart this space and set apart Christ as Lord so that in this space you will start thinking about, even if I don't want to do the thing that I should do, I'm going to do it because Christ is Lord. Like, I'm going to be a peacemaker, not because it feels good, not because I want to, not because it's even intuitive. In fact, it's completely counterintuitive, because when you cross me, I want to come back and cross you again. That's just what is natural to us. But the kingdom of heaven is different. Power is different in the kingdom of heaven. And Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord. Do you want to have a life where you can say, I love life? Pursue peace. Set apart Christ as Lord to make it happen. So a couple questions, a couple questions for you. Number one. Who do I need to stop complaining about and start praying for? Who do I need to stop complaining about and start praying for? This could be a parent. This could be an ex. This could be a child. This could be a coworker. Whatever. Who is it that I need to stop complaining about, stop telling those stories about, and start praying for? Number two, what do I need to give up? Where do I need to give up getting Even. Where do I need to give up getting even? Here's how I get even sometimes. I don't know if you can relate to this. I get even sometimes when I tell the story of how I've been offended to multiple people over and over and over and over and over again. And then I feel like I'm getting even with the person who's upset me because I'm making, I'm tarnishing their reputation in someone else's field. And I feel like, haha, I'm making them feel just as bad as they made me feel. That's one of the ways that I do it. When I, and I don't, by the way, sully at people's reputations for the fun of it. It sounds like I'm just going around ruining people's reputations, which might be interesting, but I try not to do that very much. But with my closest friends, when things are really kind of struggling, that's what I find myself doing. When I tell the stories too much of how I've been hurt, I'm essentially trying to get even, is what I realize. Number three, in my toughest relationships, would anyone look at that relationship and be like, man, that's, that's how a child of God acts. That's how a child of God acts. That... That's a tough relationship. But yeah, I see it. I see they look like their dad. They look like their mom. I've seen them before. That is a characteristic of a heavenly father and of a child who follows them. Now, I do not want to add more weight to you for those who are in some very, very difficult situations. I know many of you are. You're in situations, if you're here in the room or listening online later, where uh, marriages are falling apart or have fallen apart, ex'es are creating great difficulty for you. Um, you're worried about your kids and things have not gone well with them recently. You're concerned about mom and dad, and, you know, your, your, um, your business relationships can be like uh, it can be stressful. I, 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 I do not want to add more weight to your heart and to your soul and put this on you as a weight to bear as if you haven't done enough. And I hope as we've talked through some of the nuances of this, you'll see what Jesus is saying here, that on the whole, on the whole, our attitude for those who have crossed us is that we are people of a heavenly Father who, number one, doesn't seek revenge by default, doesn't seek to get even by default, but steps into love and prayer for those who have crossed us that we can be called sons and daughters of God. And so I don't want to add more weight, as if you haven't done enough. But I do want to put it out there and say, this is unnatural. This is a challenge. And there may be cases where it's appropriate to have great boundaries that keep you healthy and keep you safe. I'm a big proponent of that. I'm not a proponent of overly, quote-unquote, peacemaking. Just sweep everything under the rug, and let's get to peace. That's peace-faking, not peacemaking. But here's what I know. That, That Jesus can't keep you, can't keep me, from becoming like my mom and dad. But you and I can choose. You and I can choose. If we set apart Christ as Lord. We can choose to become more like our Heavenly Father in how we love, pray for, and seek the peace of people around us. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they're going to be sons. They're going to be daughters of God. Next week, we're going to wrap up this teaching. Look forward to having you back here for the final message in power. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stop for a minute on this challenging topic of being a peacemaker, of feathering this line between letting things go and allowing love to cover a multitude of offenses, sins and confronting everything that exists, I pray that you would give us the savvy and the wisdom we need in this difficult space, this highly nuanced, complex space where our parents are doing things, and our exes are doing things, and our kids are doing things, and it's been years and years, and we've had sleepless nights, and we'll have more. It's hard to know how to be a peacemaker, and have I done enough? Should I do more? At the very least, Father, I pray that you would help us To learn what it means not to seek revenge and to learn what it means even to pray for those who are at odds with us. That we could act, even in the most difficult of times, like children of a Heavenly Father who seeks the peace of His children as well. We thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your patience with us. We love you. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name.